<sighs> now, see, if I only had five minutes, I could talk a long time, like an hour, but I can talk whatever I want. And I'm here like, uh, what? <laughs> so now I can do this. Um, actually, it's really good for me. One of the things, the most powerful tool that I've had since I crawled, literally crawled into Alcoholics Anonymous was remembering when. And the reason being is that when I remember where I came from, no matter what I'm going through in my life, good, bad, or otherwise, um, it allows me to see that everything is okay just the way it is, no matter how hot it is. Because if I had a drink in me, that is not what would be going on. So even now, like some of you know that my son had a massive coronary and um, he's had an anoxic brain injury. So he's in the hospital and he's struggling to get his uh, cognitive um, brain back. But uh, even that, like when I do this, it shows me like, what would it be like if you were drinking? See? It reminds me what it would be like. I might fantasize or romanticize in my head that a drink or a pill or a joint for me um, might ease some of this up. But my history, my track record is going to show you that it never eased anything up. Every single time this alcoholic took a drink, a pill, a joint, it ended up being disastrous. And I would not be able to see that it was because I was using a substance that the problem had gotten worse. I'm not going to say it caused all my problems because it certainly didn't. But whatever problems I had, it definitely made them worse and sent me further and further away. In fact, when I look back now, knowing what I know now, I didn't know it then. I would say it was a tool that uh, alcohol was a tool that helped me to disassociate. Uh, from the pain or uh, the feelings of being trapped or alone or isolated that I felt for a very, very long time. It eventually didn't work, but in the beginning, it did its job. So um, I've said uh, a lot of my story. A lot of you have heard it before, but in order for me to uh, do this, I need to go back a little bit. So I uh, did not, absolutely did not grow up in a house where there was any kind of alcoholism, drug addiction, mental illness, but those people had their problems. And some of their problems ended up uh, causing problems for me. Um, and I'll explain that a little bit. I don't usually get into it, but since I have the time, I will. Um, I was um, adopted by my grandparents and never told um, I was raised to believe, or they tried to get me to believe, that they were mom and dad. And they were a good mom and dad. I wouldn't trade them in. If uh, there was such a thing as you actually got to say what you wanted to do and who you wanted to have for your parents before you came to this fucking planet, I would pick them again. Because they were very loving and they... I uh, knew how to take care of children, and they, I always had a roof over my head. I always had enough food to eat, and I learned how to read and write and laugh and play games. And my mother had this knack of turning things into, like, magical 
um, experiences like we would have a hurricane and the tree would come through the, the kitchen window. She would turn that into a game and she would literally help all us kids climb up that tree and come through the kitchen window. And it just turned it into a game that we didn't have to live in terror of. So I can't even claim uh, that there was like a lot of major trauma. But there was this underneath thing of not feeling like I belonged or there was something wrong with the story that was being told. Because when I would come in a room, people would talk about me in like a third person. They talk about my hair or my diction or um, I don't know. They'd just be marveling at how I was growing they weren't really interacting with me. And I know now today why that is. Because my father was only 17 years old and my mother was 16. Now, she was Irish. I did not know. They, they completely removed my Irish heritage from me because nobody wanted me to find out the secret. And But my mother was Irish and as Irish as they come, all her people are from Cork. I have pictures of them. I have all kinds of history now. But uh, I was not given that growing up at all, and not even into adulthood, not as long as Ma and, and uh, were alive. I didn't get that information. So anyways, I always felt out. Now, I've heard people say a lot of times that they felt like they were adopted and they couldn't understand it. Well, sometimes you are, because <laughs> I was, and they never told me this, but my mother was literally uh, like in her her mid-50s when I was just a little kid. And as I became a teenager, I'd say, I'm trying to, how did you have a baby that late in life? That's so wild. And of course, everybody would get tense when I would ask questions. The other thing is I was brought up in a time in America that doesn't exist anymore. Uh, the doors were open. Uh, the windows were open. You could go in a neighbor's house and get a cup of coffee. Nobody was going to shoot you for knocking on the wrong door. Uh, you were welcome to come in and out. Your dog wasn't even going to bark if the neighbor came in. Um, it was a different time, a different place. I could ride my bike to the park and leave it there and go running off and do something, come back two days later. My bike could be in the same spot. Even if somebody used it, they'd put it back in the same spot. Um, it was just a completely different world. We had fruit trees naturally growing in the yard. We had a grapevine. Um, my father didn't believe in hunting animals for sport. Uh, he was an immigrant. He'd come over here to Ellis Island, um, which is where the immigrants came back then. And um, there, his people were from Italy. And he became a naturalized citizen. Well, both the Italians and the Irish were hated back then in the United States. Nobody liked them being here. They were as ignorant as they are today about immigrants and anybody other than them uh, being here. And yet they were the hard workers and there'd be, there'd be nothing without um, the blacks and the immigrants because they're the ones that built the country and the Puerto Ricans, I might add, that they would bring over to work the farms. And I know that because um, my sister's husband was a big farm owner, huge, long thing. And he had uh, 
he all all his farm workers he brought over from Puerto Rico. And why? Because it was cheap labor. And that's what they did to make their money. So um, also, as far as crime went, uh, when I grew up in the 50s, early 50s, uh, crime bosses were common in neighborhoods. And even in my house, my parents never said anything derogatory about them because they kept the peace in the neighborhoods and they made sure that women and children didn't get hurt. Not like that in America anymore either. But that's how it was when I was growing up. And I couldn't really go over other people's houses that often, once in a while, but not very often. People had to come to my house. So I I never learned how to uh, go outside of the family. It was always bring the family in. And my mother and father both, uh, they they boarded uh, children um, and families. My mother was one of the first people to run an ad in the paper saying, if you've been abused, call DOT. And her phone number would be in the paper. So sometimes in the middle of the night, a woman would come with her children and uh, my mother would take them in and we'd all have to share our beds and our meals and even sometimes our clothes with them. And she would help them get back on their feet and get them into programs. She was an amazing human being. But she also uh, was very Irish. And she brought her kids up in the Irish that she came from. Um, She wanted to give that to me. But I know now today that my father, who was really my grandfather, didn't want me to be limited by the life that the immigrants were going through back then. So he would insist that she brought me up American. And he didn't want me learning any languages. They didn't send me, they didn't tell me anything about my culture. I was not given Irish tap lessons. <laughs> Nothing. But I was given dance lessons. And I I would love the sound of music and I would love the sound of tap dancing too. And uh, they had a lot of Irish friends that came in the house. And I would sneak out of my bed and go to the door just to listen to them talking. I would have went home with any one of them. It's amazing the the, uh, connection that you actually have uh, genetically with your own kind. And I always felt like I just wanted to go out there and sit with them. And so the best I could do was get up out of bed and quietly sneak over by the door to listen to them. The other thing is we were all put to bed early. We were bathed and, you know, we had to uh, wash our own clothes back then uh, with a washboard. You had to make sure your underwear and your socks were clean for school the next day. So you had to do all these things before you went to bed. You had to help Mark clear up the table and There was no argument about it because that's the way it was. I don't remember anybody threatening us, but I always remember feeling threatened if I didn't do it. And it was just a kind of a quiet thing that you knew if your father raised his eyebrows, you were in trouble. Or my mother would love to say things like, you wait till your father gets home, girly. Because they thought I was um, brazen because I would ask questions. I wasn't even outspoken. I just asked a question. Why do we have to? I don't understand. Why do we have to? And uh, that was not allowed. You weren't to question them. So completely different culture 
just grew up in a completely different culture. And that all changed by the time I reached, I, I, re, I reached high school. The world was changing so rapidly. Women were starting to go to work more and they were getting involved in politics and things. I remember even my mom going out and working the polls. And my father was so upset about that, that a woman would go out after dark anywhere. And, uh, you know, I wasn't allowed. I was allowed to get a car at 16. I just wasn't allowed to use it (laughs) unless it was like to go to the library or something. Um, I went to school. I didn't get in trouble in school. You wouldn't get in trouble in my house. And it's not because I saw anybody get abused. I just knew that that was not going to be okay. One thing that did bother me, I didn't want to see my mother cry or bring out the rosary beads. You knew if she was sitting there with the beads that she was praying for some black mark on your soul. Now, if that's not abusive, I don't know what isn't. But every time you had every week, she'd say, you got to go to confession because you got to tell them what you did wrong so you don't have any black marks on your soul. That's frightening for a child. And that's what I had to do. And I didn't even have anything I could tell them because I certainly didn't lie and I didn't do anything wrong. It was, was not the atmosphere I lived in. But I would make things up is what I would do. I'd have to go in that scary box with that priest. And he'd ask me what my sins were. So I'd always say the same thing. I lied three times. I talked back five times. None of that ever happened. And he'd tell me how many prayers I had to say. And I'd say it. And I'd be so glad to get out of there. And, uh, you know, so that's how it went. I can't say I was rebellious. I had a dog. That was my freedom. I would go out with my dog and uh, that made everything okay. We would walk the woods or I'd take long, long walks in the community. And that to me was what saved me back then. And then in high school, I found a drink. Um, I knew who drank in the high school and I didn't drink during school. I didn't even drink after school, but I knew who was drinking and I didn't think of them as drinking. I thought of them as fun. These were the people that were getting called down to the office, getting expelled, getting all kinds of attention and in trouble. And I just thought, oh, I wish I could hang around with them. They look like so much fun. And uh, when my when I graduated right at shortly after I graduated uh, from high school, I got a hold of these people. I knew exactly how to get a hold of them. And I didn't talk to them in high school. I talked to anybody because I couldn't go to your house. So what was, what was the point? And uh, I knew who they were, and I got a hold of someone that I knew bought alcohol. Now, this is amazing, because I didn't drink alcohol, think about drinking alcohol, nothing. I graduated from high school, and the first thing I want to do is I want to get with these people, and I want to drink. And uh, I got a hold of someone, and she bought a case of beer for me. A case of beer. I buy a case of beer. I don't buy a six-pack or a bottle. I buy a case of beer. And I had one friend that stayed with me. We were in the parking lot to the high school. And we sat in the back of that school drinking those beers. Can you imagine today if you got caught behind a school drinking beer? Jeez, they probably call you a terrorist. Anyways, we drank there. And it was like the lights came on. The stars came out. I was with my people. And it felt so good. I couldn't wait to do it again. And that was probably the only time it ever felt that free or that good because nothing bad happened that night.
other than I went home and had to lie and had to feel like I had to avoid my parents. And that would grow in time, that I would avoid everything and anything that would question my drinking, which is amazing because I didn't have anybody that was telling me I couldn't drink or nothing. I I just knew instinctively, you better not tell them you were drinking. So back then, uh, they had changed the laws in, in Massachusetts anyways, or the United States, I can't remember, to the drinking age would be 18. Just for a very short time, they lowered it. And I had turned 18. So uh, I got some friends and we drove up. No, I guess in New York, you could drink at 18. That's what it was. And it was 21 in Mass. Because we drove up to New York so that we could drink. And we went to a Chinese restaurant. And I had some horrible drink. Um, I thought I was going to be cool. It was some kind of martini. And I hated it. But I drank it. I didn't like the smell of it. I didn't like the taste of it. But I drank it. And I drank, I think I drank three of them. And that was the beginning of me drinking things that I didn't even like. It was amazing. Nobody was pressuring me to do this. I wasn't trying to get away from anything. I was just trying to have fun. I got very sick. Um, it was not fun. And I just wanted to go home. I had the spins and I thought, oh, I got to figure out how to do that without getting the spins. So that's what I would ask people. How do you drink without getting sick? And um I got all kinds of ideas given to me, all teenage ideas, you know. And so the teenage years went like that. And then um, I went out, uh, the, the 60s hit, uh, the Magical Mystery Tour. Mm. Timothy Leary, uh, ever hear of him? Well, he wasn't that far from where I lived. And he was uh, experimenting with LSD at Harvard. And it wasn't illegal. And you could get it really, really cheap. So couldn't you get pot back then? It hadn't quite gone on the books as being illegal yet. And so uh, we go out to Harvard Square. And now we're all fooling around with uh, hallucinogenics and uh, pot. And those were, uh, I look back at that, those were the funniest times ever. I mean, was it really funny? Would I want one of my kids doing it? No. <laughs> But to me, even to this day, when I think back of some of the things that happened during uh, getting high on pot or being totally wiped out on acid um, as being really hysterically funny. And so there weren't a lot of consequences for it back then either. So, uh, you know, I ended up out in L.A. because that was the big thing to do was to drop out. That was Timothy Leary's thing, drop out of the establishment. So, uh, you know, I did have a, a job and I quit the job to go to L.A. I told my mother I was going on a vacation for two weeks with my girlfriend's family. Another lie. And uh, out to California, we went. And out there, um, I don't know what happened. I couldn't tell you. I was there for three months. I was high from the time I got off the plane till the time that uh, I got rescued and um the man that became my husband um, came out there and got me and we hitchhiked back across country because hitchhiking was a big thrill back then and people did it. So um, that's what we did. And we tried to, he had gone to Vietnam and come back and uh, we got married and we realized right away it was a mistake for us to be married because he had what we now call PTSD 
They didn't know what it was when the guys first started coming back. Uh, it was frightening, actually. It wasn't like anything that I got lots of friends that have PTSD. It wasn't anything like what he had, I'll tell you that. I mean, he literally thought he was in Vietnam and uh, would lose. He had like psychotic breaks from it. And he was so afraid that he would hurt me because we had been best buds all through high school. And he uh, didn't want to hurt me. And I had, uh, we had had a baby and he didn't want to hurt the baby. So he said, we should get divorced and I should go back home and live with my mom. And we stayed uh, friends throughout. But people did that back then in the 60s, anyhow, at least in my circle. And my mother, uh, uh, she loved people. And when I found my second husband, my first husband, my second husband would always be there for dinner. That's how it was in my house. Everybody was family and uh, everybody would come in and she'd have all her grandchildren there, the whole family. And everybody would not like today. Everybody's like, oh, I get to spend time with my family. We all loved hanging out and uh, being with mom and dad. And she always made it fun and made the greatest food. So. That's how it was, and it wasn't too bad, but my second marriage uh, introduced me further into the bottle, and I can honestly say, looking back, that alcoholism robbed me of that marriage. Um, Vietnam robbed my first marriage, but alcohol alcohol, um, robbed my second marriage. My husband um, was an extremely abusive alcoholic when he drank. He did not know who you were. It isn't just that he was in a blackout. He absolutely had no idea who you were. I can't tell you how many times I got thrown out the door because his wife was coming home and I'm his wife. Uh, And he had no idea. And I had children and my daughter had been born birth defective. And we we lived a really scary life. My children did not live the kind of life I lived growing up. My children lived with both their parents, alcoholic. I was the alcoholic of the depressive variety, and he was the alcoholic of the rage variety. And um, that combination was horrible for raising children. So my oldest boy, who the one who's had the massive coronary, uh, he uh, was the one that took care of me. And he would get, he was best buds with his stepdad. It was his stepdad, and they were best buds. And he would get between us so that my husband wouldn't throw me out the window or set my hair on fire again or countless other things that he would do to me in his alcoholic rages. He was the one that could calm him down. That child, and he was a child, became an adult before he was ever a child. And um, that would continue um, throughout life because my daughter was born multiply birth defective and he would automatically just helped me take care of her. I was the kind of person that became so depressed and I got more depressed from drinking. It didn't relieve the depression. I sunk deeper and deeper into it. I could barely function at all. I wouldn't even be here today if I didn't have my my son to begin with because he would nurse me and take care of me. I'm not I'm not proud of that. I actually regret that more than anything that's ever happened. And uh, I'm lucky and fortunate that today I can make a living amends with him by taking care of him and doing things for him. 
and not going to him as if he's got to fix my problems or laying any of my stuff on top of him. Um, but that took me a long, long time to figure out. I didn't learn it just because I got sober. So it would cost us a lot. And he had his alcoholism problems and substance abuse problems that would crop up because of it. If anybody drank because of trauma, I would say it was him. Um, the other two, I got sober. So they lived a short stint with me as an alcoholic, but their father never got sober. Um, and so Alcoholics Anonymous came into our lives when I was 37 years old. Um, somebody kept trying to tell me I was an alcoholic. I couldn't see it because I didn't get in trouble. I didn't have DUIs. I didn't get in barroom fights. I was very sunk inside of the bottle. I, I'd like to call it something fancy like uh, an introvert, <laughs> but I wasn't. I was just an alcoholic stuck in the bottom of a fucking bottle is what I was. And uh, I got deeper and deeper stuck. And I used to be able to come up out of it for periods of time and try some new thing, some new health regime. Or I can remember one time I was in a kick about riding long distance bike and I would ride this bike for miles and miles. 20 miles was nothing for me back then. I was, I was really fit. And uh, that was my new thing. And then I'd be doing that for like, say, three months and I'd stay away from anybody that drank. Um, or smoke cigarettes so that I wouldn't do it. That's how I controlled it. I didn't even know I was controlling it. I just thought I was on a health kick. And the thought would occur to me one day that I needed to have some fun, that I was just working a little too hard at all this. And the only thing I could think of to do to have fun was to go out and have a nice meal. But I'd go out to have the nice meal, and I wouldn't even have the meal. I would drink. Once I'd have, a, I'd start out with a glass of wine and before you know it, I was into the hot drinks and, you know, all the, the fancy stuff. And then I was end up finishing off the night with beers and smoking pot and, you know, I was having a blast. So I thought, and here were my kids at home with the maniac and um, trying to cover up for me. I eventually got him out of the house. I eventually divorced him. And uh, that just, if there was any point in time in my life I was going to turn it around, it should have been then. I was going to school. I had a degree. That's the other thing. Alcoholics often can live double lives. So I had this other life over here where I went to school and I worked. I actually worked in the field. This is scary. I worked in the field of uh, uh, psychology. I actually did um, drug and alcoholism counseling, knew nothing about alcoholism, treated it all as if it was addictions. It just frightens me to hear people talk like that today because an alcoholic like myself, uh, it's a little bit different. But uh, uh, I knew about that and I worked inside of the jails and I also worked, I did couples counseling. That's frightening to think that I was doing that when I look back at it. But I was really smart and my, my head would get me into these jobs and people would always say something to me like, you know, there's something just not quite right about you. I can't figure out what it is because I was very good at keeping my drinking away from anything having to do with um, work. 
I would give them the slip and uh, go somewhere else in another community. So there had to have been some awareness inside of me, even back then, that something wasn't quite right about what I was doing. But uh, alcoholism, in my experience, lies to you in your own voice. And it's the one illness that'll tell you that you haven't got an illness, you haven't got a problem, that it's other people, it's people, places, and things. If you had my life, you'd do this too. Here I've got this maniac husband who was my ex-husband, but he wouldn't go away and he was still harassing us. And I have this daughter who was born multiply birth defective and this young, and my son who was setting fires because his life was so fucked up and he didn't even know how to be a kid. I get it today, but I didn't get it back then. And then I had this little one born and I, I didn't want him to go through all of this anymore. I didn't. I wanted, I wanted to die and I would screw it up all the time. I'd try to kill myself and I'd have a good plan. And then somebody would come along and fucking drag me to the hospital. And I'd be so angry because I would wake up and I was still there. And I'd say, how can this be true? I don't want to be here. And then I'd have to leave. I'd escape from the hospital to get out of there. I can remember it as clear as if it was yesterday. I'd be laying there feeling like they were sucking the oxygen out of the room and I needed to get out of there so I could breathe. That's all I was thinking. I got to breathe. So I'd leave. I'd pull out the IVs and I was very sick with alcoholism and I hadn't even seen it progressing. I didn't see it. I had no idea. And this woman that I was telling you about in the beginning of this, she saw it all the time. I went to this other outfit called Overeaters Anonymous one time. Now, if you could have seen me, I, I was thin, but I had a swollen belly from uh, alcohol. My pancreas was swollen. My liver was swollen. And my belly had a little bit of a bulge. So I was fat. And I needed to go to Overeaters Anonymous. So I went to Overeaters Anonymous and they had this funny little twist that you couldn't drink alcohol because it was really a cob and it was a sugar. And I was in with these, they called them Nazis. Um, they called them um, gray sheet not Nazis. And which all that meant was you didn't eat sugar and flour and you only ate three meals a day and nothing in between. And uh, I thought, well, they're the tough people. I'm going to do what they're doing. So I was going to do it. But the thing is, I couldn't do it. Because what happened was they didn't think I should be drinking. So I was in the wrong place. And this woman knew it. And I guess she was trying to tell me maybe if I went to Alcoholics Anonymous, I'd be able to get the hang of all this. But I don't remember her saying it. She told me that like I can't tell you how many times, even after I was sober. And I, I for the life of me, do not remember her telling me this. And... Uh, well, one day, she I do remember this. I went to see her, and um, she said, uh, if you don't go to a meeting on Monday, there's the meeting, and she showed me where it was in the book. If you don't go to that meeting, I'm coming up to Lawrence, which was probably about 10 miles from where she lived, and I'm going to take you there. Well, I have this sick pride, <laughs> and nobody's taking me nowhere. Yeah, I, if I got to do it to get her off my back, fine. I'll go to the damn meeting and show her I don't need to go to the meeting. 
at this time, I was not eating. Uh, I was simply drinking mostly a lot of vodka, um, beer, wine. And I don't know who was watching the kids. It certainly wasn't me. So anyways, I went to this meeting at the Lawrence Plains Community Center, December 13, 1985. There are some people that will tell you that um, they went to the meeting and they felt like they were home. And they were so happy to be there. I went into the meeting and thought, why am I doing this? I'm doing this just to get this bitch off my back. I can't believe I got to do this. So I'm thinking I'm not there to get help. I'm just trying to get someone off my back. Now, these, this happened to be a meeting where a lot of old timer guys were there. If you were a woman talking to me, I, I basically would just yes you to death. I wouldn't hear a word of what you said. But if you were a guy, because I loved my dad so much, if you said something, I'd think about it. I wouldn't like it. But I think about it. And so I'm lucky that there was like about eight really long term old guys uh, that like would be kind of rude. And some people didn't like that, but I needed it. And they'd sit in the back of the room and they'd say, you know, if you don't take another drink today and you come along with us, that fucking life you're crying about might get better. And I hadn't even told them I was crying and I was crying. So they had my attention. I was watching them. I hated them, but I was watching them. Another guy, this guy, Timmy, the jockey, and he was a real jockey that had gotten sober. He used to come up to me and he'd say, it isn't pretty where booze and drugs took you, is it? And I hated him for saying that. And I would try to go to meetings where he wasn't, but he seemed to be at all them meetings. I thought he was following me around. I was so booze sick and I didn't know it. If I had, I don't know how I didn't go into seizures and die because uh, as the alcohol was draining out of my body, I would have the heebie-jeebies. I'd have like, feel like bugs were crawling out of me. The whole nine yards, what you see in movies, that's what happened to me. I don't know who was taking care of the kids then either. We all lived in the same house. Must have been my son. Anyways, uh, I don't know. This woman... She said to me, if you're having trouble staying away from alcohol tonight, give me a call, dearie. And I thought, okay, give me your phone number. But I wasn't going to call her. And uh, I got home and I thought somebody was in the house. The longer I tried to stay away from a drink, and I'm talking hours, not days, the worse it got. I started to see things flying past me like that. And uh, I felt... Uh, like somebody was in the house and was going to stab me to death. I was I was having terrors, and um, I didn't know it. So I called her, and I said, I'm not thinking of drinking, so it's not that. But I think somebody's in my house. Do you think you could come by? She said, I'll be right over. So she come over, and <laughs> she comes in, and there's, like, alcohol, either empty bottles or bottles half full everywhere. And my kids were in the other room sleeping. I haven't put them to bed. My kid put them to bed. And uh, she says to me, um, well, it looks like everything's okay. Your kids look okay. Where did you see this person? And I said, I don't know. They just kept going by me. And she had detoxed pretty bad, so she knew what I was going through. And she said, uh, why don't I make you a cup of tea? 
and sat down and she made me a cup of tea and I couldn't drink the tea. It made me go in the bathroom and throw up. And she come in there and she cleaned my face. She got me in the shower. She's helping me to get the bugs off of me. It was pathetic. And then she said, you know, I think we should dump the rest of that alcohol out. And I immediately had a change of personality. Who the hell is in my house and how dare she? I'm not going to drink that. There's no reason to do that. You're going way too far now. And she'd say, well, you know, you could end up drinking it. And then we'd have to do this all over again. And I thought in my head, well, if the only way I can get her out of here is to let her dump down that booze, fuck it. I can get more. Who cares? Let her dump it down there. And then she turned at me and she said, no, I want you to dump it down the toilet. And I lay on the floor crying because I couldn't do it. And it was like I was above my body looking at myself on the floor. What is wrong with you? Why are you crying over this? You can get more. What's wrong with you? And she wiped my face again and she put the, the, the rest of the alcohol down the toilet. And she said, now I'm going to tell you what, tomorrow, if you get yourself to the meeting, I'll give you a ride home. I had no car. It was the dead of winter, really cold in northern Massachusetts. And uh, if I got to the meeting and I could walk to any bar, never mind a meeting, I could have done it. If I got to the meeting, then she'd give me a ride home. And it was the best thing that anybody could have ever done for me um, was not to just start picking up the pieces for me and let me feel the pain a little bit. Let me be sick. I got myself there. She wanted to make sure I got myself there. And I did. I can't say I went there because I didn't want to drink. I just mostly went there to keep her off my back. And I got there and she wanted to give me a ride back and I wouldn't let her. I said, I got here, I'll walk home. And it was the worst thing I could have done. I, I didn't drink, but I wanted to drink. And it was the most horrible ride, walk home ever. All the bars were talking to me. All the packies were talking to me. I wanted to drink so bad. By the time I got home, I could taste it. It was coming out of my pores. And I had to call her and tell her I should have let her give me a ride home. All these things felt to me like a leveling of my pride. I hated it. I felt ashamed. I didn't want people to see me like this. I want to be like those people that were in the room laughing and talking to each other. And she told me I could be that way one day. I just had to go through this. That if I was willing to suffer through it, that one day life would be different and I would, I would get better. That I was a sick person, not a bad person. And I would cry the whole time she would tell me this. Um, I eventually had to move away from there because my landlord was sick of my shit, didn't care that I was sober. He wanted his money. He wanted me out. So some AA people came and helped me move into a motel um, pretty far from there. I was devastated, but it was the only place I could go. Uh, the state paid for the room, and uh, they put my stuff in storage. And I was stuck in this motel with my kid, and um, I didn't have a car. And my husband found out where I was and he would show up there and harass me, throw bottles at the door and laugh at me. And um, out in the back was a pool room and a pool table. And the girls were going out there and hooking up with the truckers and they were getting out of there. And I knew I could do that, but I was I was afraid I'd drink and I had my kid with me. So I didn't. 
I'd make it through. And then I had no choice but to ask somebody to give me a ride to a meeting because I couldn't stand being there and I couldn't stand being me. And if I couldn't kill myself, then I might as well just go with them until I could. And that's what I did. And that was the early days of sobriety for me. So if people were talking about God back then, it went right over my head. I have no idea. Maybe they were, maybe they weren't. I don't think they were. I think AA was a little different back then, but maybe they were. I never heard it. All I heard was a drink talking to me. And uh, what saved me was AA people. They came and they tell me what I was going through, the impending doom, uh, the unfounded, ungrounded fear. They kept describing what I was going through. And boy, I, I didn't like the news that it was they were actually describing what I was feeling because it meant I was like them. And somebody would say, that's because you still want to drink. One day when you don't want to drink anymore, you'll understand it. And I thought, wow, this, this is harder than they thought. How am I going to do this? You know, I couldn't stand my kids looking at me because I was so ashamed of what I had become. And a little by slow, one day I was uh, 90 days sober. And they told me it was my turn to get up the front of the room and talk like I'm talking to you people now. And uh, if I could have just had a heart attack, I would have had one. I couldn't believe I sat there crying the whole time. I couldn't barely say a word. And this old guy said to me, you know, if you took that bear cap off and you joined the land of the living and you came along with us, life might not be so painful. And I didn't know what he meant. I finally had a question. I asked somebody after the meeting, why did he say that to me? What was he talking about? They said little things like, why don't you come to the coffee shop with us today? And I was like, that's what you want me to do? You want me to go to a coffee shop? They said, yeah, we all go over there after the meeting. Why don't you come with us? And I couldn't put food in my body. So I, I was ashamed. And she said, it's all right. You don't have to eat anything. You can just sit there. I'll get you a drink. And um, I went, and that was the beginning of the fellowship at Alcoholics Anonymous for me. There is a little pamphlet, um, Many Paths to Spirituality. And in the beginning of it is a talk that Bill gave a little late, but he gave it anyways. I think it was 1965. It was really actually part of a speech he gave to the conference. And uh, it says in there that this is a common bond, a kinship of common suffering. And uh, that's exactly what it was for me. And it wasn't the suffering of my life because not everybody lived the life I lived and good thing. I wouldn't want them to have to live what I lived, but there was something else that was, we were suffering from. And that was learning how to stay away from a drink under any and all conditions, good, bad, or otherwise. I needed a defense against the first drink. If I didn't take the first drink, I couldn't, I would never get drunk. That baffled me. I would sit there and say, well, that is true. That's true. I guess that's true. If I don't take the first drink, how the heck do I get drunk? And for me, I always had to add in a drink, a pill, or a joint. And that's not for everybody, but that was for me. Because one thing led to the other thing led to the other thing, and life would be over. I was so close to death. My kids had no mother. I never want to have to go back there. And they told me that wouldn't be enough to keep me forever, but it was enough to make a good beginning. 
And I didn't know what that meant either, but I would find out that I would have to learn how to clean up my mess, that nobody was going to come and rescue me, that I was going to have to, people gave me help, but they weren't going to do it all. I was going to have to learn how to be a single mom, how to take care of the kids, how to go to medical appointments, how not to fight with teachers, how to help the kids get to school, how to do the things that people do to keep a roof over their head and food on the table. And eventually I was going to have to go to work and learn how to do that too. None of those things had I ever done in my marriage. I wasn't allowed to. My husband, that would have been cause for a beating if I left the house for anything. And I had to face all of those fears. And I did it little by slow with a lot of help from a lot of people. I have the most tremendous love and respect for the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, my friend Bob, he's sober like, I don't know, 50 years. He talks a lot. He was always secular, always the whole time. Uh, he talks about how um, it isn't the power behind the fellowship. It's the power of the fellowship. And he would say that. And this is long before anybody had an inkling of starting a meeting for secular people. And I would gravitate towards that. And I'd hear it and I'd say, I get that. I get that. My sponsor who loved God, never put God on me. She told me that you do a group of drunks and don't worry about it. Don't worry about what other people think, she'd say. Worry about what you think. What do you think? Worry about that. Take, learn how to take care of those little kids and learn how to be good to yourself. And I had no idea what that meant. How do you be good to yourself? I thought that meant go get a guy. And, and have them come home. So I tried that. That didn't work out too well because <laughs> I wasn't well enough for it. I wasn't. It was all trauma bonding. None of it was healthy relationship. None of it. And it wasn't because I wanted it that way. And no, I didn't have a broken picker. I just didn't know any better. And it helped us. They, we, we stayed sober. We went to AA. And uh, we all worked way, I worked our way. We all survived it. Um, but that uh, was not the answer. <laughs> I had to learn how to take care of me and do good things for me, like walking and eating right and hydrating and having friends and laughter. And rule 62, not taking myself so seriously. And the only other thing I can say before I end is that service helped me because I couldn't do one-on-one -on -one intimacy for a long, long time because of where I was coming out of. What I could do was be of service. I knew how to do that. So I did that. But today, I'm more well-rounded. I, I do service because I love AA and I don't mind giving back. But it's a whole different ballgame. I have good friends. I love friends. I love comedy. I love my children. And... Um, I know where the help is for me. I just have to go get it. You know, I only probably need two meetings a week. I just don't know which two meetings those are. So I go to all as many as I can so I can figure out which two it was. That was meant to be funny, by the way. So anyways, look at me smiling and my kids there and my daughter's bedridden. This is all because of the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. Thank you for listening. You've been a captive audience. I appreciate that. Thank you.